Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Morning. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this day. Thank you that there's no height, no depth that can separate us from you, Lord God. Thank you for that word. Uh, we just worship you. We submit this word to you in Jesus' name. And just have your way, Lord, in everything that is spoken. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. That line was hitting me today. There's no high, no depth, no river. Let's sing that. There's no height, no depth, no river your love wouldn't swim. There's no curse, no hurt. That could separate our hearts from him. Heavenly Father, we love you. Again, we submit to you. Have your way. I find it very, very ironic uh, that in the season of warfare that I'm in, uh, I get to share on the arm of God. So today, I shared this word a couple of weeks ago at, at Tableview, and I get to share it again today. And it's preaching as much to myself as it is to anyone here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Bunty Kiramire. For clarity, uh, I am not in any way related to Wayne Bartas. <laughs> uh, I often get mixed up with him. Uh, the only thing we share is our hairstyle and our dashing good looks. Um, um, I, I often lead worship here. I lead worship sometimes in uh, table view as well. We've been part of, my wife and I, she's based at Tableview, and I get to come here quite often. Um, we've been part of Life Changers Church since about November of 2016. We actually moved to Cape Town, moved back to Cape Town. I studied here and then uh, left uh, in the beginning of 2016. Quite a big uh, upheaval for us, so lots of change. Uh, lots of change in a, a short period of time as well. And uh, it's been such a joy to be part of this church. Um, I've I gave my life to God in 1990s a couple of times. No, I was a very rebellious child. Um, I gave my life to God in 97. That was one of the, the f almost final. There was lots of sin between 1997 and 1998 where I said, okay, no more. And uh, it's been a journey since then. I, I, I grew up in Zambia. I'm a Ugandan by descent, but grew up in Zambia. And I've served God in ministries in, in uh, Namibia, Zambia, Uganda, and now in South Africa. And it's been quite a journey, and, and over that period of time, there's a lot of, of uh, skepticism that entered my heart around his church. You know, you get hurt in it sometimes, wherever you have people, you get hurt. And it's been quite a growth that over the past two years, a lot of those pains have been healed. Um, and part of it has actually been my service here at Milneton. I came here, I remember the one time I came, I don't know if I was backing John or... Um, but it just was so awesome to stack chairs, stack speakers. Because when I served, when I first got saved, that was the kind of church I was in. It was a church plant. So we'd be there. I was at church Monday to Sunday. And for youth groups, stacking chairs at 4 o'clock for the meeting that's only starting at 8. Um, so it was very familiar to wake up at 6 in the morning, go fetch equipment, fetch people in the worship team, get to church, start setting up. You're there, you serve, you lead worship, you sit down, pack all the chairs back up, and then it's one o'clock by the end of the day. So coming here, just it took me back to basics. 
And it's, it's cool now that we have it done for us, but I really kind of miss that, to, to, to be honest. Yeah, so it's been a journey. Um, and yeah, I'm, I have Ephesians 6 on my heart this morning. It's about the armor of God. And uh, let's just jump straight into it. There's a couple of points that I have, and, and God has been sharing or speaking to me about this. It actually started with, the, with, a, with a video that uh, Brendan Ritfeld in our life group shared. And it's a verse that I've heard over and over and over again. And it's only recently that I realized I don't actually understand what it means. And that video, two-minute video, just opened it up for me and made me realize there's, there's a lot here that I need to unpack, that I need to apply for myself, that I'm still applying for myself, and that's what I'll be sharing on. So if you can go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. I have that highlighted. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, and this is the part I'd like to focus on, therefore put on the whole armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, before we delve into that, there's a couple of things for context that I'd like to share. I was actually preparing uh, for this. We had a men's gathering one morning on the Wednesday, and guys were asking me, what are you going to talk about? And I was trying to explain, this is what I have. I haven't put it all together, but these are the kind of ideas. And Rory Dyer was there, and he said, actually, start with the context. If Ephesians, if that's at the end, and it's talking about the arm of God to protect something, then there's something that it's referring to in the beginning that you're building up from. So what's the context? And that's what I'd like to start with. There's a few key points about Ephesians itself from chapter 1. Um, one of the first main things is, like, unlike several of the other letters that Paul wrote, Ephesians does not address any particular heresy or error. Most of the other letters that were written were correcting something. There was nothing that Paul was correcting in this piece of, uh, or in this letter. He was writing specifically to expand the horizons of his readers so that they might understand better the dimensions of God's purpose and his grace and appreciate the goals that God has for his church. So one key point, he's opening up the minds of his readers. What's God's bigger purpose in all of this? And the climax of that purpose is identified in chapter 1, 7 to 10, where Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. What's this saying? God's ultimate redemptive work is to bring all things in the universe together under Christ. That's the ultimate purpose, and that's what this whole letter is about. It's about opening up for his readers to understand this is God's ultimate purpose. So now, he, having explained this goal, 
he now starts breaking down the steps to achieve this. And the first step is reconciling God, uh, God to man, the individual. Um, chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, it says, As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And then in verse 8, it says, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance to, for us to do. So the ultimate purpose, all of creation, everything in the universe brought together in unity through Christ under God. Step one, reconcile the individual man to God. Step two, reconcile men to each other. Chapter 2, verse 11 to 22, it talks about how God has broken down the barriers between uh, 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 the Israelites and Gentiles. Um, I'm actually going to read that whole thing because there's quite a lot in it. From verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that formerly you were who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that there was a time that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel. And it goes on to say, For through him we have both access to the Father by one spirit. This is verse 18. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens, God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together and becoming a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. So, ultimate purpose, bring everything in the universe together under Christ to God. Step one, reconcile man to God, the individual. Step two, reconcile men to each other. Step three, God wishes to use the church to make his manifold wisdom known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's powerful. I'll read the verse and then we'll discuss it a bit further. Chapter 3, verse 10 to 11. His intent is now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus the Lord. The Christian life serves as a witness to beings that God is using us, each and every one of our lives, to serve as a reflection of his manifold wisdom to all of heaven. So every life, every Monday that you wake up, every daily task, every challenge, every frustration, every fear, God is working out in those each of our lives. Every gift, every purpose, every anointing, God is working out in our lives. That one, we, we um, um, strengthen the body, and two, that that body serves as a witness to the wisdom of God. So again, from the top, ultimate purpose, all of creation unified under Christ to God. Step one, reconcile man, the individual, to God. Step two, reconcile men, all men, to each other. Step three, use this body, the church, to make known to all of creation the wisdom of God. Now the problem 
is that we live that out on a day-to-day basis on earth. And it is so easy to come. Worship was awesome today. It's so easy to get lost in the presence of God on a Sunday and then forget that on the Monday with whatever happens from traffic and someone swears you in traffic or whatever or whatever. There's all sorts of things that can hit you out of left field, you know. It's so easy on a day-to-day basis to forget that. But that is part of the journey. Part of this glorious redemptive picture is living out that journey on a day-to-day basis. That's powerful. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting shivers here, man. Um, so, yeah. Um, and and something that is really real to me, I've, I've, just a bit of an aside, it's something I'm having to remind myself of, and I, I know that each and every one of us are in similar spaces. People are going through things that they have to trust God or they're not hearing God's voice or they're trying to press through for something or something happened that took them by surprise. And it's just, it's something to bear in mind that we're walking out this journey with a bigger frame of reference. It's not just the now. It's not just what's going to happen to South Africa. It's not just where am I going in my career. There's a bigger picture um, in all of this. So, when we finally get to the armor of God, this is opening up a, a tool that we have at our disposal to help us live out this journey on a day-to-day basis. It is a strategic tool that we apply to help us to live out this uh, uh, journey on a day-to-day basis. And, and to be clear, we are constantly engaged in war. We live out this journey constantly in war. We live as part of a fallen world. God is working through us, using us to paint a picture to the world, to the universe. But there's a constant uh, uh, tension that we live with while we are on this earth until we are redeemed. Um, Ephesians 6 verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Now this is where we get to the arm of God. It allows us to live out this bigger picture. And there's a couple of things I'd like to touch on before we go, uh, before we break down the different tools. But very quickly, chapter 6 verse 13, Therefore put on the whole arm of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything to stand... The mandate is to stand. When the day of evil comes, the mandate is to stand. Whether or not we understand what's going on. If you look at how Job had the discussion with God, after all of what Job had was taken away from him and God came, there was no explanation that came with that. God's God's basic explanation in that whole conversation was, I am God. So even in situations that we don't understand, the mandate is to stand. Um, I'd like to touch a little bit on military strategy in general because uh, if you look at the definition of military strategy, it has as much to do with diminishing ability as it has to do with diminishing will. 
It's the practice of reducing an adversary's physical capacity and willingness to fight and continuing to do so until one's aim is achieved. It takes place in wartime and in peacetime and may involve using force directly or indirectly as a threat. Wartime and in peacetime means all the time. <laughs> and there are many examples. I remember a couple of weeks ago here, uh, Gabe was talking about Winston Churchill and about how there was nothing. And even when you watch that movie, there was a movie that came out probably about a year ago. There was nothing behind England or the Allied forces that they had to back them. And they were talking about negotiating with Hitler. And you have one rogue individual that comes with nothing behind him but a boldness of will. Will is critical in every kind of contentious environment. The, your will is just as important as, as your ability to do what you have to do. I see it all the time. I'm an Arsenal supporter. <laughs> uh, every time, people laugh at that. Arsenal is a good team, guys, and we're coming back. Um, but one of their major weaknesses is not the style of play. It's not the ability to play in the past. It's generally been their will to play. So if you look at some of the games that uh, I've watched, uh, recently it's changed with a new coach, but you have, say, Arsenal versus Liverpool. I'm looking at you, <laughs> um, Where five minutes into the game, Arsenal scores. The game is looking good. Everything is looking hot. We're looking like, yeah, we're going to take this. We're going to take these guys down. 13 minutes into the game, Liverpool scores. And it's 1-1. Game is tight. Could go anywhere. 75th minute, Liverpool scores again. And then you start to see the team crumble. And between the 75th minute, say another goal comes in the 87th minute. Between the 87th minute and the 96th minute, say end of stoppage time, there's four more goals that come. And you're wondering, what, ha what happened to this team? What happened? What was the difference that between the 87th minute and the 96th minute, what fell apart? It's will. And the same happens in us every day. Sometimes things happen and it feels like the wind has been taken out of you. And you just want to give up. So it's that, that's important that the mandate is to stand. Okay. So, with this in mind, it's important to understand the purpose of the armor of God and how it's applied. Um, and with me personally, there was a way I interpreted the armor of God previously that sapped my ability to stand or get, took away from my will to stand and there's a way that you can interpret it that has the center on Jesus that encourages you to stand and that's what I'd like to dissect a bit here so first thing is the belt of truth the belt pulls all the pieces of the arm of God together it is what allows mobility it's what allows flexibility it's what allows the sword to be there um, and one way of interpreting this, or one way I interpreted it previously that wasn't correct, was that I, as an uh, individual, have to be a man of truth and integrity, and without integrity, um, everything else falls apart. If I have even one s bit of untruth in me, then, I, then that belt of truth doesn't hold the armor together, everything falls apart. Pressure is on me. Pressure is on me to be flawless in that area. Another interpretation is Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. And we, we read it before. 
about uh, by we're saved by faith through grace that no man could boast. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and whoever comes to the Father comes through Him, um, and that He is the gateway. Before we can even ask, access any of it, it's through Jesus. So by wearing Jesus, He's what holds the whole armor together. His gateway allows access, ability, purpose. It starts with Him, ends with Him. Now the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate shields vital organs from blows. So your heart, your lungs, it protects you. One way of interpreting it is that I must be righteous at all times. I must cultivate a pure heart. If there's any sign of impurity or imperfection, there's a crack in my armor and Satan knows about it, he'll take advantage of that crack and again, everything will fall apart. I must be flawless. Another way of interpreting it is that I am confident not in my own works of righteousness that I may not boast. Not in my own works of righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness by faith, not of works. And that righteousness protects me. It also protects me from the attack of the devil that says, I'm not good enough to come to God. So many times... Um, you know, <laughs> so many times in my past, I'd start something, think I've already messed up. I might as well go all the way. It, like really, to the point that I would pray, God, forgive me for what I'm going to do, and I wouldn't talk to God for a week. That idea, or oh, I woke up this morning and I, was in, I woke up late and I didn't get to read my Bible, or I had a rushed quiet time, condemnation. God does, God's not happy with me today. You, then you cut God off completely. Or you feel like you have something to work at to be close to God. That's a judo move from the devil using you to be the accuser of yourself. He's the accuser of the brethren, but he says, I'm actually going to delegate to you, let you work on yourself for a bit, and then come back a bit later. But with God's righteousness, with Christ's righteousness, that protects us from that. The third one, feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. This was one that I didn't understand. No interpretation. I don't understand what the gospel of peace is. I don't know what my feet are supposed to be doing in that equation. The second interpretation is that there's a constant readiness, a constant prompting or listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. If you look at a... a John 3 verse 8, this is the conversation that Jesus was having with a Pharisee that came to ask, uh, eventually it went to, what does it mean to be born again? And that's where John 3.16 came, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That conversation, Jesus says to him, the wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it goes or comes. So is one who's born of the Spirit. He's talking about constant uh, um, constant talking to God, constant what's next, what's next for this step. You know that verse that says the word is a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my path. The kind of lamps that they were talking of could only show enough light for the next step. There's the same way that the manna would, would be collected fresh every day and they weren't allowed to store up the manna because God wanted a constant dependency 
a constant communion with his people. So when he talks of um, Philip, there's that example of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch where the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south. There's a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. He, at every step, was waiting for the next prompting. He walks on that road, then he sees a carriage. There's an Ethiopian eunuch in the carriage. He stands, go, the Holy Spirit tells him, go stand next to the carriage. He listens, he hears the guy reading out of Isaiah. He says, do you know what you're reading? Explains Jesus from Isaiah to present day and crucifixion. The guy says, what's to stop me from being baptized? They say there's a pool there. He gets baptized. As they're coming out of the water, Philip is teleported to another city. God didn't tell him from the beginning, you're going to walk three kilometers on this road. You're going to see an Ethiopian eunuch. He'll be in a carriage. You're going to hear him reading Isaiah. And after all this happens, I'm going to teleport you to X city to do it. He didn't break it down like that. He just said every step, constantly, what's the next step? And that's the intention with us as well, that every day is not mundane routine i know what my monday looks like every day because we're going to have a meeting at this time or i know what lecture is going to be when it's constant polling god where are you taking me to now what are you asking me to do now then the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one this one and the sword of the spirit are quite big because uh, they're quite emphasized a lot in, in, in general uh, around the prosperity gospel as well. Um, and one way I misinterpreted it was that I must have faith. When the devil attacks me in my health, my wealth, or my family, if I have enough faith, I'll cause him to return sevenfold what he tried to take from me. And if I'm sick, there's something wrong with me. My faith is not good enough. All the pressure on me and my faith. You can imagine it's the same situation Job was in. When Job was lost his family, when he was suffering in his health, all his friends said, you must be sinning. There must be something wrong with you. And God made it clear, no. And he didn't even try and break it down and help them to understand why that happened. So that's the first interpretation. The second interpretation is that the devil's not after my health, wealth, or my family. He's not. He suffered with Job. He attacked Job's health. He attacked Job's wealth. He attacked Job's family. And he suffered as a result of it. He's taken lives. And the gospel has spread even further because of people who he's taken. So he knows that that doesn't entirely uh, advance his agenda. He's not interested in it. What he's interested in is in your relationship with God. That's what he's after. He's after your intimacy with God. And like that strategy and military strategy, it applies in wartime and in peace. You know, my, um, when I was uh, dating my wife, she's from the free state, from a town called Kwakwa. And um, there's a mountain there called Vitsi's Hook. It's one of the highest mountains in the world. And um, one of my uncles was really trying to intimidate me. So he said, um, we're going to have a drink. Uh, and I'm not going to come fetch you from home. You must meet me by this bus stop. And we're going to drive up to the mountain. So it's like an hour's drive on a winding road. You're literally in clouds. 
So now <laughs> I'm busy panicking because we're driving up and I can feel that I was in a polo. The car is struggling. We get to the top of the mountain. He actually ended up being quite a chilled guy. We had a good conversation and we're going back down. And he said, life is kind of like this road. You think you're struggling when you're going uphill, but it's actually when you're going downhill that you're most likely to lose control of the car. And it's the same. It's wartime and in peacetime. Sometimes when you think things are easy is when you are most vulnerable. If you look at David, when after, I mean, David's journey is just an amazing journey. He saw God. He trusted God. He saw God come through time and time again. If you look at how um, when things were going good and his men were getting, uh, um, I mean, he was establishing himself as part of the Philistine camp and they were going to war against Saul and they said, actually, don't let David fight with us because he can turn against us, send him back to his camp. He went back to his camp and found they'd ransacked the camp, taken all the women and children. And he was the only one there to stand and say, I'll encourage myself in the Lord. All the men were weeping. He stood and said, I'll encourage, it said David encouraged himself in the Lord. That's a man that knew God. He knew God from childhood. He knew God from him against the lion and the bear. He knew God from him against David and Goliath. He knew God. This is a man that knew God. But he's on top of his castle one day. His armies have gone to war. He's relaxed. He's established everything he's ever desired to establish. He sees Bathsheba. And from there, you can imagine from the thought that, let me just ask the men to call her. I just want to ask her who she is, to next thing she's pregnant, let me just ask her husband to come from the war front home because at least he'll think it's his child to actually he didn't go home, put him on the front lines, maybe he'll be killed. You can think of that whole progression, however long it took, whether it was three weeks, six weeks, two months, he wasn't talking to God. I can bet he was not speaking to God. That was in a good time. He was comfortable. Yeah, so um, the devil's ultimate target is our intimacy and our faith in God. So in understanding that, then the shield of God is to keep us trusting in God, keep us intimate with God. The next one is the helmet of salvation. One interpretation for the helmet of salvation is I must be saved. Salvation is what this whole, the basis of our belief system is, um, I know Jesus. It's not really a big issue for me. I will gave my life at one point. That's it. But it's actually a lot more complicated than that. The gospel of salvation, second interpretation, the gospel of salvation should be securely placed in our minds to allow us to discern between false doctrine and spiritual truth. And that protects us from spiritually fatal blows. If you think about the head, you can survive a blow to your lungs. You can survive a blow to your liver. You can limp away, missing a limb. But if someone strikes your head, you're gone. That's the basis. And it's also something that the devil has continually attacked. You know the confrontation between Peter and Paul? when um, they were talking about grace and salvation by grace. And then 
some of the religious leaders started bringing in the need to be circumcised. And actually, yes, we're saved by grace. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. But now you must be circumcised. Now you must not eat unclean food. And Paul confronted Peter and said, that's not what this gospel is about. You'll find throughout history, even to this day, the gospel of salvation is consistently attacked, what it means to be saved. There's always something trying to bring in. If you look at modern-day churches here, even in South Africa, you see what church has become, and you think, how did we get there? It's from here. A clear understanding that we're saved by grace and what salvation is, and, and also the constant need to sift and filter doctrine. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is interesting because it's the only offensive weapon. All the other weapons are defensive. It's protecting us from something, allowing us to walk with God in one way or another. This is the only offensive weapon. And the only thing that it actually offensively does is build our faith. Again, building our ability to trust in God. Building our intimacy with God. So one wrong interpretation is, if I read and meditate on the word of God, it will build my faith to better trust him for my health, wealth, and family. So as I'm confessing or as I'm believing for my health and my wealth and my family, I'm using the word as a tool, almost like a, a manipulative tool. If I read, if I meditate, if I confess enough, it's almost like a genie that you're stroking the lamp and you can name and claim and get what you want. It's actually building the faith that if I read and meditate on God's word, it will increase my ability to trust him and his purposes in my life, whether I understand them or not. And God does want us to be blessed. God does want to prosper us. It says, may you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. But the ultimate purpose is an intimacy and a faith in God. So there's one way that you can look at the armor of God, and maybe just one last point. In general, in war, once you put on armor, you don't take it off. You, you don't have soldiers in trenches deciding to take off their armor in the middle of a battle. You put it on once and it's there with you. There's a way that we can look at this same armor in a way that has us focusing on ourselves. And there's a way that we can look at it that has us focusing on God. From the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness to protect us. God is my righteousness. Feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Where are you taking me, God? What now? Who are you? What are you saying to me about who? What should I speak? How should I speak? The sword of the Spirit, building our faith and trust in God and intimacy in God. I believe that and for me personally and, and possibly corporately as well, there's a space of warfare that we're in. And it's an encouragement that if your will has suffered, trust God. Slightly, if your will has struggled, if you've tr struggled to hear God, trust God. Look at the armor as a way of, God, here I am, use me. So if we could take a moment to pray and um, just trust God for his work in our lives, for his work in every challenge that we're facing Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we worship you. Thank you that there's no height, no depth that can separate you from us.
that can separate us from your love. God, we submit every challenge in this room. We submit every family represented in this room to you in Jesus' name. You see every need. You see every uh, pain. You see every challenge. And we just pray, be glorified. Have your way. Be glorified, Lord God, that we'd see you in all of this. Be glorified, that you'd have your way, Lord God. Be glorified. Speak to us. Guide our feet. Help us to understand what your purpose is and establish your purpose and your plans for us, Lord God. We trust you. We love you. And we submit to you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.